Uh, we're in our series called Curious Questions, up to number four in the series. And our question today is, how do you know God is real? How do you know God is real? And I think this is one of the greatest questions we can be asked. How do you know God is real? And it's really a question as well about how do you know Jesus is true? Because, funny enough, God and Jesus, they, they go together quite a bit, don't they? Uh, and while people question the reality of God, uh, most people, not all, but most people don't question the reality of Jesus, but they question the truthfulness of Jesus as well. And so, pop quiz, if someone asked you, how do you know God is real? How would you answer it? And don't feel too bad because I'm chattering away up here, giving you time to think about what you might say. But can I ask, I'm only going to give you 30 seconds, turn to someone around you, someone next to you, uh, how would you answer that question? And don't stress if you don't know how you would answer it. Where you go, 30 seconds. All right, if I can grab your attention again, it's not very long, I know. Such a big question in such a short amount of time. But thank you, thank you all for engaging with it. Uh, you can carry on that conversation with a cup of tea after the service. Absolutely. Uh, but this question, how do you know God is real? I really, really like this question, actually. Uh, I think it's one uh, kids, young people, are particularly apt to ask uh, because, you know, they just ask questions, don't they? It's a wonderful thing about them. But I love this question because it gets to the heart of the matter. It's about God. And you know what? That's a really, really good topic to talk about. It's not a fluffy question, you know, not like one of those questions, random questions you get of like, do you think angels are tall? And it's like, I don't really care, actually. <laughs> I don't know, but I also don't overly care whether they're tall or short. Uh, but no, this is about God. It's about his reality. This is about Jesus. And, you know, if, if he is real, if Jesus is true, that matters. If God is real and Jesus is true, that changes everything. It changes my life one way or the other, and it will change your life. It will change this world. It is a significant question. And I, again, I don't know how you answered it this morning, if you did, but I want to suggest that God has given us, you and I, the evidence that we need to answer it. Isn't that good, good news? We don't have to make anything up. Uh, maybe we don't know it, but the evidence is there, I want to suggest. And ultimately, God has indeed given it to us in the Bible, which is our authority for life and faith. It is how we get to know God, not the only way, but it is how we get to know God. But within the witness of the Bible, we see God answer this question about his reality and about Jesus's truthfulness through, I want to suggest, five witnesses. So in the Bible's witness, we come across these five witnesses. These are creation's witness, history's witness, people's witness, our heart's witness, and the Spirit's witness. We find all of these in the Bible, and all of them, all of them, equip us to answer people's questions about how we can know God is real and how we can know that Jesus is truthful. And please hear me here. I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying if someone asks this question that you look down at your hand and go, I've got five things to bring out here. No, no, no. If someone asks this question... You probably look down at your hand and go, blast, there were five things. Which one can I remember? And you go with that one. And you maybe share one, maybe two, if time allows. 
Uh, but I trust that if we can hold on to these tools, that God will use them in our lives and in our conversations and in our relationships with others. Because I think people are curious. I think people want to know why you believe what you believe. Are you with me? All right, let's get into it. So first up, creation. Creation's witness to God's reality and who he is. Did anyone mention creation in their answer? Yeah, there's a few nods. Fantastic. And you know what? Rightly so. The Bible starts with the story of creation, which is a significant point that God made everything. Uh, But Psalm 19 is probably the best-known biblical text about this. Listen to just the first few verses. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, including today, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech and use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world, including here. Creation is a wonderful witness to God. His work speaks of his glory. It testifies to his majesty. It tells us something about him. You know, I, I came this morning to down to the church uh, while it was still dark, and it was a clear sky uh, this morning. Cool and crisp, but a clear sky. And the stars were out They were visible. And there is a revelation in those stars, the Bible tells us. This complexity of this world, this unity of this world, how it all works together, and this beauty of this world all point us to God's reality and God's power. And look, as long as people have eyes, which is most people, they can see this witness. You know, more or less with a few exceptions, everyone has seen this witness. Uh, Really, the question is, do they understand it? Do they understand it? Romans 1 verse 20 tells us, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We are all without excuse because of the creation of witness. Uh, Sorry, because of the witness of creation. Now, these are examples of how the Bible talks about the witness of creation. The question is, how might we point people to this witness? And I'd suggest you don't quote this verse, for starters. Uh, No, this verse is for you and I. Uh, I'd suggest that you have these verses in mind when you talk to people. So have Psalm 19 in mind when you talk to people. And perhaps, just as a suggestion, you word it something like this. This world, creation, is God's handiwork and points us, points all of us, to his reality. And I think on some level, you know you have some experience to this. Now, depending on the age of the person, you might ask, have you ever held a baby your own baby, and thought, what an incredible accident. No. No, we don't really do that. We don't respond like that. And I don't think we should. And likewise, this world is not an accident. A sunrise is not an accident. 
The positioning of the sun, the moon, and the stars are not accidents. And while we can look at the big picture, we can also look at the little picture. And the more science gets to know and understand about the forces and all their funny names, which I end up mispronouncing, I think the more we know this world has a designer, and so do we, so do you. Let's help them hear and understand creation's witness to our God and their God. Amen? The second witness we can bring to bear is the witness of history. And this one is probably the hardest one of the bunch, actually. But God is interested in history. God is interested in history. He entered into it, for one thing. Uh, But no, he's interested because it gives an account of him. It points us to him, to his reality and Jesus' truthfulness. Let me read you an example of this from the Bible. Luke uh, chapter 3 starts with two of the wordiest verses in all of Luke's gospel. Uh, And when we read these two verses, we might be tempted to skip them because it's just name after name, which I admit I'm about to butcher in some way or another. So be gracious to me. But Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Utria and Traconius, I don't know how to pronounce that, Lysanias, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, Luke, who wrote, funny enough, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, gives us six pieces, count them, six pieces of historical information here to place this event. He's not messing about. Six pieces of information. And I want you to actually remember the first two names here particularly, Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate. If you can, remember those two names. Luke cares about history. He cares about Jesus and indeed uh, John as well, entering history at a certain time, a certain place and saying certain things because he wants us to know it with certainty. And we should want that same for that for others. Now, I wouldn't go here straight away. If someone asked me, how do you know God is real? I wouldn't go to these verses. I wouldn't. But my experience, and maybe it's yours as well, I'm I'm open to, I don't know, being corrected here, but my experience is when people ask about the reality of God and the truthfulness of Jesus, they haven't done a lot of research usually. Like, And by research, I don't mean like necessarily consulting massive tomes of books or anything. They just haven't really looked much up. They don't know. And you know what this means? When they pop that question to you or I, you're their research. You know, before they go and look it up online or before they go and read a book, they're going to ask you. And rightly so, but it does put a little bit of pressure back on us, doesn't it? To at least know just a little bit. But this is also a privilege, I think, as well. And I want to give you two names you can use. Two names, historical names that you can use. I think these are historical examples that point, indeed, to the the truthfulness and the significance 
of Jesus. The first one is a Roman historian called um, Tatius. Tatius? Did I say that right? Tacitus. Tacitus. There we go. Last. I knew I said it wrong. Uh, he wrote a book called The Annals, which was around 116 AD. I only mention that because it comes after the New Testament. It's later than the New Testament. They were all earlier. Uh, but this is history that comes from outside the Bible. Listen to his description of the history of Christians in Rome. Uh, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. A Christus, as Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, note, note a few things here. Um, how do you say his name again? Tacitus. Tacitus. I keep getting this wrong. Tacitus uh, is not a Christian, and he has no particular love for Christians whatsoever. He, in fact, he calls them evil. He refers to Christians being tortured here. He refers to Jesus, the Christ, suffering the most extreme penalty. Uh, that would be crucifixion, although he doesn't name it. And he refers when this happened, during Caesar Tiberius's reign and Pontius Pilate's rule. Both names that we've just heard Luke mention back in Luke chapter 3. Now here's my thing. I don't expect you for one moment to respect this this, uh, sorry, to remember this quote. Uh, I'd be impressed if you could remember the name because I can't remember how to pronounce it either. But you know what? We can point people that, no, there is evidence out there. There are historical testimonies of Christianity. And here is a Roman historian who, who refers to, to the early church, to those Christians as evil people that were hated by the populace and indeed tortured. And yet it is this God who has the most followers in the world today. Well, that's quite a turnaround, isn't it? History points to Jesus' reality, but it points to his significance as well. And I think if people are willing to look they're going to be confronted by, what do I do with this? Do I just ignore it or do I do something with it? One example. Second example, his name's a little easier to remember, Josephus. Uh, and this is probably the one I'd mention. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans and he wrote a history of the Jews called Jewish Antiquities. Uh, he was born not long after Jesus died. Well, his history, which is multiple books long, actually, mentions Jesus in a couple of places, but particularly book 20, chapter 9, if you want to look it up, mentions James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. I put a link to a video of this in the news sheet today as someone tries to explain this link. Uh, he manages to do it under eight minutes. That's my sales pitch to you to check it out later today. Um, history is not straightforward, I just want to mention here. And one of the things that this guy who does this video that's under eight minutes goes into is the fact that so many uh, of the copies that we have of Josephus, of what he wrote, were actually um, 
copied by Christian scribes. It was Christian scribes. They didn't just copy the Bible. They copied lots of things. Uh, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, somewhat understandably, as they went through Josephus's work, there is a great likelihood they inserted a couple of their own comments in amongst them, which was not unknown. Uh, they would think of it as clarifying things. Others would look upon it as coloring things. Again, I don't think any of us are going to remember these quotes, but we might remember these people, Tacitus and Josephus. Look, I got the name right once. There we go. I'm learning as well. The point, though, is that there is a lot of historical evidence for Jesus. And this is probably the point I would make. You know, uh, Emperor Tiberius that I mentioned, that Luke mentioned in chapter 3, that Tacitus mentioned, there's more historical evidence for Jesus and about Jesus than there is about a Roman Caesar. Just to put that into perspective. More evidence for Jesus. The evidence is there if you're willing to look. And if people ask, you just got to look. You just got to look. Jesus has changed the world. He has changed the world. That's worth a bit of your time. Because he might just change your life as well. The third witness is people. And here we, we could, of course, include our own testimony. And that would be great and very understandable. But there are some other witnesses that we indeed have to draw upon. Some very important witnesses. People who were indeed eyewitnesses. Which is not... You and I. It's not to ignore your testimony or mine, but we actually have eyewitness accounts as well. Again, let's remember their question. They want to know why we believe in the reality of God and the truthfulness of Jesus. And I'd pick personally pick three examples from the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as well. Stephen from Acts 7, Paul from Acts 9 and elsewhere, actually, and James the disciple from Acts chapter 12. Any of these three men confront us about the reality of God and the truthfulness of Jesus, but together, uh, together, as Luke put them, they paint a picture for us. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. He's killed at the end of Acts chapter 7. In fact, he's stoned to death, which is a pretty unpleasant way to go. Uh, but it's why he was killed that matters. Because he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't steal anything. He wasn't particularly mean to anyone. Just the opposite. Uh, he was actually involved in the distribution of food. Now, why he was killed is because he talked about Jesus and who Jesus is. He wouldn't keep quiet. He could have kept quiet, but he didn't. He could have taken his words back and probably got away with his life, but he didn't. He believed in Jesus he believed that Jesus had died for him and he was willing to die for that. Now, I think that's a testimony worth listening to then. I mean, how many people's testimonies do you know like that? Well, what about Paul? Paul was actually at Stephen's stoning, we are told. He looked upon the stoning of Stephen and approved of it. And yet, after Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision... Paul's life completely changed, as dramatic a change as you could imagine. I mean, this man who had respect and power, he went from persecuting Christians to being one and suffering as one. He was beat up, he was imprisoned, he was nearly killed on multiple times for being a Christian. And I'd suggest, 
I don't think it's a wild suggestion, but I'd suggest that only something truly significant can make that complete life change in someone. And God's reality in Jesus is the reason that Paul changed. That's the reason he tells us. What about James, the disciple from Acts chapter 12? This is not James, Jesus's half-brother that Josephus referred to. This is James, the disciple, James, the brother of John, James, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder. We might also know him as. He had walked and talked with Jesus for three years. He had seen Jesus crucified and buried. And here he is, still following Jesus after the fact. After all of that, still following Jesus, and that is why he was killed. Now, that might seem like a failure on one hand, but what greater witness can there be than someone who would give their life for a cause, who'd give their life for Jesus? You want to know about the reality of God and the truthfulness of Jesus? Well, I think you've got to consider those who are eyewitnesses to him. You've got to consider their lives that they were willing, many of them willing to lay down their lives and indeed die for him. Mm, That's a reality you've got to consider because it's a big thing to die, to lay down your life for something you believe in, isn't it? That sort of willing sacrifice demands an answer. We can dismiss it, but it is worthy of at least some time some consideration as well. A fourth witness we can bring to bear on this question of God's reality is people's own hearts, specifically about right and wrong. And here you don't really need to know anyone. But Paul speaks of this in Romans 2 where he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of God, do by nature things required by the law, like not stealing, not stabbing each other, Uh, They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law of God, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Now, what Paul is speaking about here is that while the Gentiles didn't have the law of God written on stone and paper like the Jews did, they did have the requirements of the law written on their hearts. And like the witness of creation that we can all see, so we can all recognize and feel this witness of God's reality in our hearts. If we were accidents and there is no God, then there is no morality, there is no right and wrong. But that's not how we operate. It's not how our world operates, is it? That is not our experience. No, people get upset with each other. Have you noticed this? People get upset over things we say that is wrong. People are unhappy when children are mistreated and either there's something to that, something behind that, or this is something that we've come up with. How how can that be wrong if it's just upon us? People feel their conscience both telling them off and convicting them, don't they? But they also know their conscience sometimes when they are accused, their conscience defending them as well, that you are not wrong. Now, no one's conscious, conscience sorry, is perfect. And Paul is not saying that here. But what he is saying is that there is something of God's law in us all. We know right and wrong to some extent. And this is a witness we can appeal to. 
That is one of the reasons that I know God is real and Jesus is true. We all have an awareness of good and evil. We all have a a conscience and thank goodness of that because imagine the place if we didn't. This is God's law written in our hearts. It points us to God's reality and indeed our responsibility to him. And come on, we've all had this experience, haven't we? Everyone has. Our conscience accusing us, maybe our conscience defending us. And this is by design. It points us to God. It pointed me to my need of Jesus. It might point you as well. Well, the last one, and probably the most significant, is indeed the witness of the Spirit, who is sometimes pictured in the Bible as descending as a dove, hence my picture here. But before Jesus went to the cross, uh, he spoke of the role of the Spirit that he would send, telling us in John 16, verse 7, uh, but, uh, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. And this is so, so very important for our witness to the world, because we don't witness alone. If someone pops that question to us, Uh, Actually, we're not receiving that question alone. The Spirit is there as well, we believe. Uh, Jesus left us, it's true, but he hasn't left us alone. No, the Spirit brings his presence and continues his work in this world. You know, John Calvin, he's a 16th century theologian. You mightn't think of him as the most spiritual, in some ways, you know, spirit-filled guy, but he had this to say about this. Uh, Far more advantageous and far more desirable is that presence of Christ by which he communicates himself to us through the grace and power of his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, than if he were present before our eyes. John Calvin is saying it is better for you and I to have the Holy Spirit with us than to have Jesus with us. Which is really challenging because I'd really like to see Jesus, actually. That'd be really, really cool. It would make my day. You know, that would supersede Father's Day, I've got to admit. But what he's getting at here and what Calvin sees is that when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches that message that gets such an amazing result from the crowd, it is the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit that makes the difference that day. Sure, Peter gets up and preaches, but he is talking in the city to the same people, at least some of the same people, who 50 days before it's not that long, had crucified Jesus. I don't think there'd been a complete flip-flop in that time, right? They just carried on with their lives. Just another person up on a cross, away they go. Maybe a few things, strange things happened around there, but they were carrying on. No, it was indeed the Spirit coming and indeed filling what Peter had to say. I'm not taking it all away from Peter, but the Spirit witnessing in that time that turned these people from people who indeed had convicted Jesus and called for his death to people who responded and believed in him. Praise God for that, eh? 
What a turnaround. And it is the same Spirit who is a witness with you and I. The same Spirit, not a different one. The same one. And this is the work, the Spirit's work, that every Christian should know in their own lives and every Christian should rely upon as indeed we go out into this world to make Jesus known. It is the Spirit that is going to convict people of their sin. The Spirit that is going to drive it home that they need Jesus. And the Spirit that is indeed going to bring them to life. Why do I believe that God is real and that Jesus is true? Because the Spirit witnesses to him. This is more than our conscience. Our conscience is real. That is real. But this is a conviction that we are not only wrong, but wrong before God himself. A wrong that he has wonderfully dealt with out of his goodness of his own heart towards us. A conviction that I've experienced. How about you? I would say. Do you know what Jesus has done for you? That is why he came. He came to save you. Brothers and sisters, the witnesses we need are available. Like they are there. Let us know them and be equipped with them. The creation witnesses to God. Remember Psalm 19. Can I encourage you? Hear the testimony of the stars that you might point others to them. History witnesses to Jesus that God has entered our world as one born like us, but one who died for us. And even those who don't believe witness to Jesus and the church's growth since then. Jesus has had a big effect on this world. That's something that I think people should notice. We also have eyewitness testimonies from people who prove their witness with their lives. Paul is a wonderful example, a man whose life Jesus turned upside down and who challenges us that Jesus is still in the business of turning lives upside down. Maybe ours is not quite as dramatic as Paul's, probably not. But it's pretty dramatic for us. And people's own hearts and consciences witness to God's reality. Oh, they feel it. They know it. Sometimes more deeply and heavily than we can ever know. The conviction over wrongs in their lives. And we, we can introduce them to the Savior that can free them from their own conscience. And most significantly of all, the Spirit is the great witness to Jesus This is his job, a job we know ourselves. We've experienced it in our own lives and it is his work that we rely on as we go out and make Jesus known to this world. Friends, we are not alone and I pray that we we know that as as we bear witness to our great God, he is real, he is true, and he is good. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I think everyone, every one of us has had that experience of someone, someone pops a question to us about our faith. Maybe this question, God, about your reality, Jesus, about your truthfulness. Maybe another question, and we get flummoxed. We, we get lost in that moment, and, and we don't know what to say. 
But I pray this morning, uh, as we have looked at these five witnesses that you have, that you, you mention in your word and that you give to us, uh, that indeed, Holy Spirit, you will make this real to us, that these will hang in our lives. They will be things that we remember, maybe things we look up a bit more, the things that we remember, that we will be prepared, we will be equipped in those moments, ready to serve you and ready to make you known. And oh Lord, that you would use us, you would use me as I bumble over people's names that I still can't pronounce right. You would use us all and maybe through us, people would come to to know you, to know your greatness, to know your holiness, but to know your goodness as well, a goodness we know ourselves. Lord, you have been so kind to us Please give us a boldness and courage as we we go out into this world that we are not alone, that you have not abandoned us, but you are with us and you are for us. You are working through us. We pray this in your name and for your glory.